Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the After Later podcast. I am your host, John Wessling. I hope you're having a better day uh, today. Hope today is a better day for everybody. And it has been the past couple days, the past fucking week, really. Uh, let's, uh, you know, it's been tough to deal with, hadn't it? I think we've all been going through it, you know. So shout out, love, and uh, respect and solidarity for all my brothers and sisters of color out there. Fucking bullshit. Whole thing is fucking bullshit. It's a good way to start a podcast, isn't it? <laughs> I, it's just the mood I'm in, man. It's just I'm I'm a big raw nerve of anger and anxiety and waves of depression. Holy shit. But luckily I've got some comedy coming up on Friday. <laughs> yes. That's the good part of being a stand-up comic, is uh, you know, all that shit builds up in you like a like, a, like the caldera under Yellowstone, right? But luckily, Old Faithful, psst, get to let off some steam. And this uh, Friday, uh, June 5th, we'll be performing at the Rudyards in Houston on Wall. Name of the show is uh, unfortunately called The Riot. And before you get mad at me, it was already called that way before there were riots. Well, not all riots. It's a, they've been doing that show for about a year or so. So there were pre-existing riots. But it wasn't, you know, such a hot topic. But uh, I will uh, take to uh, changing the name temporarily in light of current events and just call it The Peaceful Gathering. So there will be a show called The Peaceful Gathering. Uh, Friday, June 5th, 8 o'clock. Rudyard's Pub on Waugh in the hood of Houston. The, the, the Montrose neighborhood, the old comedy club neighborhood. My buddy Tommy Drake will be on the show with me. It's going to be a good one. So hopefully I'll, you know, and I'm rusty as hell. I haven't performed stand-up in too damn long. At least true, real, on a stage, full bore stand-up as usual. So we'll see how this one goes. But I definitely feel like I'll be exercising my demons. <laughs> oh, man. And it feels so crazy, man, because, you know, you know, the first month or so of this whole shutdown, I was real preoccupied with, with being on the coast-to-coast roast, right? And it was an, a needed distraction. Gave me some inspiration, something to work on, a project to do. Along with these, you know, just the regular household life projects, you know, and it gave me something kind of like a purpose, right? And then it ended. We came in third place. I was very happy with uh, our performance and how we placed, and it was a great experience. And I thought, well, now I'll just spend the next couple of weeks talking to a lot of the comics that were on the roast with me, and and uh, we'll have nice conversations, and it'll be cool. We'll sort of digest it. But my God, then the world said, "Oh, I'm sorry, was the coronavirus not enough for you?" Now we got this. I don't know what you call this. So now it just feels ridiculous continuing to talk about the Coast to Coast Roast because that was so damn long ago. But it was a great experience, man. And I got to work with a lot of cool comics. And that was that was good for me. It was important for me. It was, it was something I could kind of hang on to, right? To, to speak kind of plainly and honestly. It was, it was important for me, right? And I liked it. I liked building up a little bit of a community. Even if it was only for, you know, three weeks of time, it was nice to have uh, other comics a lot of them I'd never met. I never got to work with before. You know, se- several that I had, were real close friends with that I haven't seen in such a long time. So it was nice. It was cool. Build up a little bit of community and some more connections. You know what I mean? Some other like-minded people who are going through the same shit. So my, my guest today, and uh, I, I met during this roast, I knew him already. His reputation preceded him. The guy's hilarious. He is a... No other way to say it. He's, he's an absolute fucking monster when it comes to the roast comedy world. And uh, we wound up uh, against them in the second round of the playoffs. 
And it was the hardest I had worked, uh, I would say, in the whole thing was um, uh, to roast against him in Philadelphia, against Philadelphia. And uh, I don't know how, by the grace of Vishnu, we found our way to uh, to get past him. I think 60-40 or something like that was the vote. Uh, I thought he had us beat. I thought they definitely, him and, and Mackie were very, very funny. I thought they had us. Uh, but um, me and Trey had some good stuff. And we closed strong. And uh, we got the win. Which, you know, then we next night we, we lose the first uh, round of the Final Four to Minneapolis. And uh, to punish them for their sins, God gave them uh, horrible protests and riots. <laughs> Suck it. Suck a butt. I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. You know, I love you. Uh, but I definitely, I knew that once this was all over, I wanted to talk to this guy because he's very, very funny. He works on all the big roast projects. You can see him at the comedy store like last seven, eight years. He's been a big part of the, the roast battles that go on there working with Jeff Ross. Uh, you've seen him on uh, Comedy Central. Uh, he's written for many of the big Comedy Central roasts. Uh, this guy is very, very funny. So without further ado, let me just get down to my interview with from Philadelphia, but in Los Angeles, Mr. Pat Barker. Joining me now on the After Later podcast is the very funny Mr. Pat Barker. Pat, how you doing, bud? Doing okay, man. How are, I'm, I'm doing, I feel like I'm doing as well as, uh, as, well as you, you can be doing right that's, now that's kind of how that i sense? feel that, that makes a, a ton of sense because that's how i feel like uh, uh even before you know the protest the unrest the riots and all that shit uh when it was just the coronavirus fucking pandemic plague that was uh stifling uh i felt like i the, the best i could feel was about 70 percent right so that was like yeah. the new the new 100 percent was 70 percent now, I mean, the best I can do is is get the fuck out of bed. You know, what I mean, like it's it's thirty five percent is the is is peak, and I would say I'm hovering at about twenty two right now. Yeah, I feel I haven't taken the time to put the numbers on it. I'm I'm right there with you now. I was thriving during coronavirus because I don't particularly like going out and seeing people. Yeah, and um. You know, I, I was able to get a lot of writing done. Uh, I just, I, I was, that's my jam, just staying at home and uh, not having to go out and uh, and socially interact. Um, so I was enjoying it. But this, uh, yeah, this new, the, the social unrest thing is uh, is not sitting well with me. This this one's been tough. Dude, it sucks. I mean, I, I was, I'm just like you. I was, when, it, when everything shut down for the coronavirus and the pandemic hit, even though all of my work was instantly canceled. Mm. I, I felt like, okay, I can understand that I can get my head around it. I can accept that this is the reality. Uh, I'm home with the family. I'm home with the kids. I'm catching up on shit that I haven't, you know, it, the, the the rules of life seem simple. Don't fucking go out unless you need to. If you do, cover your face, wash your fucking hands. You know, it was, there was order to it, right? Even if nothing right. else. But God damn, now it's just like we were already at the end of our fucking ropes. And then this all broke loose, which, you know, you could say it's long overdue, but God damn, that doesn't mean that doesn't just suck the will to live right out of your body. Yeah, I mean, it's um, I was talking to a friend yesterday who is uh, and, and to me, I don't even like putting this this label on it, because to me, this is not a political issue. Like, I'm I'm a liberal, but like to me, all of the 
the Black Lives Matter stuff is not a political issue at all. So I always feel weird, like, um, you know, setting it up that way. But I was talking to a buddy of mine uh, back in New Jersey where I grew up who, who's uh, a conservative, and, and we were just talking about, you know, the, the whole thing and, and all of, like, the long-term ramifications of it and, and everything like that. And he was way more optimistic than I was. And he said, you know, if I see one cop kneeling with the protesters – then I feel like we're heading in the right direction. And I'm like, dude, I'm so far beyond that. Like, I don't know how you get to like that point where you're like, well, if we can change one mind, it's like, no, we need like a massive overhaul of so many minds. Um, so, you know, it's just, I guess it depends on where you're at because he was at a place where like, he was just really optimistic. And to me, that has been like, that the optimistic side of me has just been beaten down like steadily <laughs> over the years to the point where I'm just like, I, nah, I can't, I can't look at like one cop kneeling and be like, all right, all right, we're, this is moving in the right direction. Like I, you know, until like a lot of things change, I, I think I'm just going to be like on the pessimistic side of this one for a while. You know, and that there's nothing wrong with that whatsoever. It, it, that would actually, if you're a logical person, that would make the most sense. You know what I'm saying? I mean, you can't look at all of what's going on in our fucking world and 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 have a positive outlook on it. That just means you're a crazy that you're just sort of deluded, right? Um, and I I'm I'm right there with you, brother. I am I, I'm a liberal. Uh, I live right in the in the heart of a red state. I'm basically like where I'm in in Houston. Houston's a pretty liberal city, honestly. Um, they mm. they call it the blueberry and the tomato soup, right? Because it's it's the sure. it's the one little chunk that's just so completely surrounded it's like uh we're like we're like west berlin in the in the cold war days you know <laughs> right 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 for sure but it's still it's just it, it, it's all around you man and it gets i mean uh, okay here's how i'll put it here's how i'll say i i am optimistic about race relations and that kind of stuff and even uh sexual relations you know what i mean like the uh um dealing with women's rights issues i'm i am optimistic yeah. in a way that is realistically based that yeah. e even though the current daily news is shit and that it's turmoil all around uh mm -hmm. my realistic view is it's never been better because these weren't these problems weren't even addressed for hundreds of years it was the daily uh, I guess they call it de rigueur. It was the, the, this was just the standard operating procedures of life. You know, everyone, yeah. everyone on earth was racist. That's how they told, that's how you could tell people apart. That was how you identified someone. You didn't say, Oh, that's, that's a, that's Mark. I know that guy from the bakery. And they're like, no, that's black Mark. That's the black guy. <laughs> you know, <laughs> right, that was, right, just, right. that was just kind of standard how things were. Right. And, and as far as like sexist stuff, it was the same thing. It was the, the, the gender roles that have, that have been the way they are were just sort of accepted and it was just a fucking that was just life so the, yeah. i try to keep it positive that okay it feels shitty now but it's because we're finally taking a long look at something that was way overdue so to your friend's point i can see it that hey if if even a handful of the cops are starting to that's at least progress it's not the progress you need it's definitely not yeah. a, it's not a passing grade as far as fixing the fucking problem but it's the slightest trend in the right direction. Does that make sense? Yeah, 
it does. It does. And I, I'll say this. If I'm looking for reasons for optimism, I'll say that young people, uh, and by that I mean I'll say under 40, because I, I consider myself part of that group. Um, I think young people, um, but especially under 30, are more interested in, in changing it than, uh, than they ever have been. Um, so I think that there's a lot of hope there. I have hope individually in the people. Um, I have reservations about the structure and the collective units of, of politics and, and the police force and everything like that. Um, and I think that ultimately, I think wanting a change is a, a really important first step. So I agree with you there. But I think there are some really necessary actions we have to take. And, you know, it, it, it's hard for me to look at the, the positives when the other three cops are still not arrested. Like, to me, that seems like the absolute bare minimum that you could do while America is burning down. Say, okay, well, here were three cops who aided and abetted in what we've already classified as third-degree murder. Mm-hmm. Um, they were willing participants in it. They were on camera. Like, see, that's the thing that gets me is, like, th- this stuff is on camera now. Mm-hmm. You know, when I, was gr- when I was growing up, it was all he said, she said, you know. Uh, like NWA or public enemy would come out and say one thing. And then all the white people would be like, that's not, that's not the way it is. That's just, that's bullshit. And now it's like, well, it's on cat. Like this case was so egregious. And to have three guys who just stood there and really just ran interference for this dude. So he could kill George Floyd and like made sure nobody like uh, nobody bothered him. Um, the fact that they are not arrested really, uh, it doesn't, it doesn't sit right with me. I, and, it, and, and until, until big changes are made at both a political and like a police union kind of level, I, I just, I can't feel too good about it. I hundred percent agree with you. And I would even go a step further and it's not like they stood there and let him kill him. They were in a formation. That was a move. You know what I mean? The, the, the sure. guy who's standing and watch, he's there to just sort of keep people back. But the other two, the ones that were at his feet and like his waist, they were holding him down in a way that wouldn't let him get up and get leverage. That's why the one guy can kind of keep him on the on the neck like that is because the other guy's got him stretched out and held down. It's not. It's not like <laughs> they were operating independently of of uh, Chauvin or whatever his name is, the, the 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 cop that was actually on his neck. They were in concert yeah. with. That was a maneuver that they do. That's. That's that's how you subdue yeah. someone who's that large is it's all leverage, right? So if you got his legs down and you're keeping you know him from being able to 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 move and get up and to to break free of that neck part, they were all fucking in on it, man. So they're all just as guilty. Not even in a lesser uh, accessory kind of way. They're straight up. They were part of it. I agree. I agree with you. I, I guess I'm I'm just referring to like I I just want a, a morsel. You know what I mean? Like, I just want, in order for me, for me to believe that people understand what's happening here, you got to give me something. Yeah. And to me, it can't just be a cop kneeling at a protest. It's got to be something substantial. And, and in this case, like I say, the bare minimum should be those guys being arrested and charged. Yeah. The, the, the bare minimum. And we haven't done that. And it, it really makes you wonder... At what like what length will people go to to protect the cops where you have let the country burn down for a week 
and and still have not ar- arrested these guys. Wouldn't it be easier to just arrest yeah. them? And if if they didn't do anything wrong, then they'll be found innocent and you know whatever. Like, wouldn't that just be easier? It seems really counterproductive to not make those arrests and to let everything happen and then to sit there and and bemoan uh, the fact that these protests are going on. Like, just they're protesting for something very just. Like, listen to them. Yeah. Now, this isn't a uh, uh, we lost the Super Bowl riot. You know what I mean? This isn't. uh, For sure. This isn't shit. Like, it's not of, you know, uh, superficial. This is the realest shit you can possibly get. You know, this is the most important kind of shit you can possibly uh, to, to, to be involved in. And they arrest people on probable cause for other shit way faster and with such a lower threshold of uh of i guess legal accountability all the time but the problem is you know and it sucks to say it but you know that police force in minneapolis sort of acts like a gang and you can't get one member of the gang to arrest another kind of thing like they just flat out refuse to you know follow orders so at some point you don't even give them the orders so that you don't force the issue of the uh, of having them violate it. So the whole thing is kind of rotten and corrupt and sort of, they act like a, a blue block. Right. You know, and it's, it's, it's just completely fucked up. How do you, I mean, I, I'm just, I get frustrated and angry and, and you know, I'm just a, a white guy from the South. So I can't even fucking right. fathom what it must be like to be a young black man from an inner city that has to deal with this all the time. It's like an occupying force. Oh my God. That you have to revolt against, you know? And, and then, I mean, I, sure. I don't know. I, I just, I'm overwhelmed with any sympathy and, and, and secondhand anger, basically. The, the cop part of it is the hardest part for me because um, I have family, I have friends, I have in-laws who are police officers. And, um, you know, it's, it's really, I, I see the, the most radical statements of um, the police, uh, like the police as a whole are um, corrupt and it's a gang and it, it's a lot of stuff that's hard to argue. But I think one thing that's like really important um, because I think this happens to both white people and cops. And I know it happened to me when black lives matter um, first started happening. Um, when it first became this really powerful movement, you would hear these all encompassing statements like, well, white people have oppressed us and white people have done this and white people have done that. And I remember when it first happened, I got really defensive. I would hear that and I would be like, well, I'm a white person. I haven't done that. And I think that's a natural reaction. I really do. For people who are like, uh, who, who are acting like that is complicit in, in like racism. I think it's natural when somebody attacks a group that you're part of and, and makes a statement that is all encompassing like that for you to get defensive. But I think people, what people need to realize, white people and then cops, if we're, if we're extrapolating out and, and making the statement about the police force in general, when they say it, they're talking about the collective group, not every individual within the group. And I'm going to give you an example here, and, and this one might hit a little close to home for you and some of your listeners, <laughs> and I apologize. There were, some, there were some Houston Astros that did not participate in the sign stealing scandal. <laughs> you had right? to make it about the fucking Astros. Go ahead, go on. I it's the easiest <laughs> example, man. If you guys didn't cheat, we wouldn't be here. But those guys are forever going to hear the 2017 Houston Astros cheated. They are cheaters. Do you think it's productive for somebody who didn't cheat 
to sit there for the rest of his life and go, well, not me. I didn't cheat. I didn't cheat. Or do you think it's, it's more productive to just accept the fact that you were complicit in other people cheating, you didn't stop it, you benefited from it, and now it is what it is. You're going to have that label for the rest of your life, and it doesn't necessarily mean that you individually cheated. It means you were part of a conglomerate that cheated. I happen to be part of a group that historically has been a, a, an oppressor of people. That doesn't mean that I individually have done that. But it also doesn't mean that I have to get all weird and defensive when acknowledging the, the collective past of, of, like, white people. You know what I mean? So I think I – think, and it's, it's a really sensitive time, so I can't just say this to no. cops. I can't be like, well, you need to stop getting so defensive because that's not going to help anything. Um, if anything, it might get me <laughs> shot. Who knows? But I, I – I, I think that when this all calms down, I think if everybody took a little bit of perspective on that, it would really help them listen and understand what we're saying. Um, and it's not that all cops, at least it's not what I'm saying. I don't believe inherently that all cops are bad. I think there's got to be some cops. I'm not putting a percentage on it, but there's got to be some that really got into it for the right reason and are doing things for the right reason. But what they need to realize, and I'm stealing this from a tweet that I saw from somebody that said 10 bad cops plus 1,000 good cops who don't turn into bad cops equals 1,010 mm -hmm. bad cops, right? Um, and I think that sums it up. <laughs> I think that sums it up. So it, there's got like, to be grand level reform. You can't, there can't be an internal investigation for murder. You can't be tried by your coworkers. I, I don't think that is a reasonable way to do this. Um, I, and I'll tell you another thing that I, I have been pushing for, like in conversations with people, um, including some of my cop friends who agree with this, there should be no reason that a co every cop isn't equipped with a body cam that is fully yes. operational at all times. If the NFL can have a replay official in New Jersey watching every game, then every police department should be able to take a cop who's on desk duty and say, hey, for the next two hours, you are in charge of the body cam monitors. And he sits in a room and he monitors all the body cams. And if one of them mysteriously goes off, if it mysteriously shuts off, just happens right before an arrest, happens to shut off, you radio that cop immediately and you say, hey, you better turn that back on or go to your trunk and grab the backup that we put in there. But there will be no excuse. We're not going to have a dead person turn up without any like account as to what happened. Um, and I, I think it's all part of transparency. And, and I think that's the key that we need to like, I this agree thing 100% Pat, I hate to turn this into a, um, a, a cheerleader session here, but you know, yes, queen, you're fucking killing it. I agree with you 100%. <laughs> now, uh, uh, there's a lot to digest there. And first off, let me just give you plus 10 points yeah. for using an Astros cheating scandal reference against me effectively to where I can't argue it. Okay. <laughs> we'll we'll, we'll talk some that. other time. We'll dig into that when it's appropriate and we can have a long conversation about that. But for now, well played. And I'm not going to argue the merits of that discussion. That's, that's, I think what you've essentially said that as, as white people, we are all Astros now, <laughs> right? <laughs> oh, I hate it when you put now you flipped it back on me. Exactly. I don't, I don't want yeah. that burden. I'm but, gonna send but, you okay. a hat. I'm with you. You got to wear it. You are, you are now Pat Altuve, <laughs> the innocent, the innocent Astro. Oh God. But, um, the the body cam thing is one of the biggest fucking boondoggles in history. 
because it's amazing how they always seem to malfunction and not work right in the critical moment that is the problem. The fact that they even have an ability on there to yep. turn themselves off is a fucking failure. It should just, it shouldn't even, it should just be like a, a GoPro with no fucking buttons on it. And it's just always on and you can't control it. Yep. And it's just, it is what it is. But it's, it's insane to me. And this kind of, I think, shows a little bit of the, the rot in the entire system all the way down is uh, I guarantee you they're not getting weapons that malfunction that often. I guarantee you that they're not getting military <laughs> equipment and like Humvees and fucking um, massive trucks and shit that malfunction when they currently need it or when, at the moment they need it most. No, all those other things they're spending billions with a fucking B on work properly as designed but when it comes to the one thing that holds them accountable yeah. all of a sudden it's glitchy as fuck like it's running on windows 95 there's there's no way that that's a coincidence <laughs> there's no way that that's not by design well of course but then the flip side of that is when the body cam is fully operational and we get the footage they still yeah. don't get prosecuted so I, I want to be really clear here that it's a two-tiered thing. I, I think that the, the body cam thing is, is a small part of it, but overall it's, a, it's, a, it's the mentality. It is, do you realize like how empowered you have to feel to kneel on a guy's neck for eight minutes as you know he's dying and you know yeah. you're being videotaped? You know you're on camera. You only do that when you feel like you're above the law and you've gotten away with improper, uh, like, shooting of minorities three different times already, which he had. Mm -hmm. uh, it comes out after the fact. You only do that when you feel like you are untouchable. So we have to create a culture where they don't feel untouchable. I'm not saying disband the police and just have lawlessness in the streets. Like, you know, I'm not going to some extreme on this. I'm saying they should feel like they are accountable for their work at their job, like every single one of us does. Every single one of us goes in and does some sort of job, and we know that if we fail consistently enough, we won't have that job That's anymore. That's absolutely true. And I can't think of another occupation where you get away with shit like that, where that is baked in. It doesn't, I mean, that seems like one of the basic tenets. I wouldn't call it capitalism, but just whatever this system that we're living in is you can't fuck up at work and, and, and not get fired. I can't think of a single job where you can't be held accountable for your complete and utter fuck ups. I mean, the one of the argument. Well, yeah, well, I mean, yeah, president. exactly. Yeah. That, that, that's another <laughs> podcast. We'll put that, we'll do that one after the Astros episode that we do. Uh, but, but still, I mean, fuck, okay, dude, like, like, you know what? Reagan fired every air traffic controller, Right. Everyone just basically fired them all. Uh -huh. like basically, everyone fucking leave, and then they rehired. You know, they had to basically get an entire... And I can't think of a job that's more important than a fucking air traffic controller with birds in the fucking sky right now. You couldn't... There's no way you could kick them all out. But they fucking did it. So how could you not do the same thing? How could you not just sort of go, you know what? Crazy. Fuck it. This whole thing is rotten. Guess what? Everyone's fired. Everyone has to reapply for their job. You know, everyone... Everyone has to, you know, turn ah. in your badge and gun on the desk, just like it's a fucking TV show, and then go over there. And, and if you want the job back, you got to go get in line, get re-interviewed for it, and go through all this new training. And, and you know, it's like a, a complete fucking clean slate. It seems like just about the only way you could get get out of this right now. 
Yeah, pretty much. Uh, it's it's too late to go back and, and undo the things you've already done. If you've already internally investigated somebody 20 times for 20 different complaints and found them not guilty every single time, like you can't go back and, and change that. But what you have to change is, is the mentality so they don't feel like they, they're yeah, going to be a 21st time. And, and I've all. seen an uh, argument made that like a lot of times like these bad cops, like this guy Chauvin or whatever his name is, uh, 18 different you know complaints yeah. – uh, uh, you said shot three other people before, right? But what I've seen, and you've seen this, it's a tired yeah. kind of mechanism they use on like uh, cop shows and movies where, you know, all of a sudden the bad cop gets busted and then that means every arrest he's ever made is now in question. So it's like, they are they really that in, over-invested into a cop that they can't bust them when they fuck up because now all of a sudden it's just going to be a goddamn hullabaloo of people running out of prison because their cases get overturned. Is that the, is that what they're afraid of? Cause if so, that doesn't seem right either. I don't think so. No, I, th- I think what it is, is, and, and it's, it's time to, I, I think what's important with all of these discussions, whether it's cops or, or political or anything, I'm a big fan of like taking a step back and conceding certain points. I think it's the only way you have intelligent conversations. Because I feel like 90% of people on either side of the, the spectrum are so entrenched in their argument that they can't concede anything. That's good. So let's start by conceding something. Being a cop is inherently dangerous and mm-hmm. scary, right? I would not want to do it. I could not do it. I, if I pulled somebody over, I would be terrified that they would have a gun or something like that. I, w- I would not be a good cop. So I'm going to start with saying that it is inherently dangerous and scary. I'm also going to say that when you're in a profession like that, I think psychologically it's really important to know that your coworkers have your back. It's really important to feel like you're part of a team that is in this together. But when it bleeds over into the after the fact kind of stuff, that's where it needs to be looked at. But I think that's the root of the problem. I think that's why cops don't prosecute other cops because in order to even get behind the wheel of a police cruiser and go out and, and fight crime and all this other shit, I think you have to put yourself in a mental place where you're like, all right, it's us versus them. And I think that's really dangerous. Um, and we're seeing the results of it now with all the unrest and everything like that. But I think that's where it starts. They, they have to create this us versus them mentality to be able to, psychologically get through the job that's just no, my that's opinion. a great point I think it's, that. uh, that's very uh very apt to bring that up at a time like this because i mean that's the uh the esprit de corps of the police right they have each other's back i mean and you you want that for the good reasons but when it comes to the bad stuff how do you how do you work around that you know what i mean like like okay for example let's just say the the four guys uh, involved in george floyd's death right Let's say the guy who's holding the feet is right. suffering with his uh, his conscience over this whole thing, and he flips on the other guys and just flat out says, "Hey, this is a move he talked yep. about doing. He told us to do it. He, you know, blah blah blah." All right. So let's say that guy gets back his job. He basically comes clean and gets back on the street. If the, the next thing you know, he's pinned down somewhere and calls for backup, and the other cops don't show up because he did that because he's a fucking rat. That's what they're going to call him. So. Yep. Now you have the the cycle of that is that cops have to the good cops like you were talking about earlier they have to cover for the bad cops because if they become a fucking rat then they're it's 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 their life is on the line. 
right? Or they will be out of they will be out of a job. I mean, really, in in cases like this, let's say it was not caught on camera. Who do you think would be more likely to lose their job as a result of this? Derek Chauvin or the cop who says, "Hey, here's what happened. Uh, Derek, Derek was in the wrong, and he he this was predetermined, and he planned yada yada yada." That guy is the one. The cops are going to be like, they don't want the headache. They're not going to want to deal with a cop with a conscience, with morals, because it gets in the way of the bottom line, um, and which is they've convinced themselves is being part of this like this unit. If you break the brotherhood, that's way more important than breaking someone's neck uh, while they're pinned down. That's that's the bottom line, and it's it's, it really it's is. super fucked up. Uh, and when, when people compare the cops to gangs, I think that is the most accurate part of the comparison is once you join, you are expected to put that above everything else. Um, and you do it because you feel like it's necessary for survival um, to have these allies. And it clouds your judgment on, wow. uh, on decision. No, you're making, absolutely I right. Think. You're absolutely right. Pat, I tell you, you are a, a very, very smart guy and, I think you put your 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 thoughts together very very well on this, man. And I appreciate getting the chance to kind of bring your perspective and thought on this. And uh, um, yeah, I mean, I think the 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 bad part about it is the more you discuss it, the more you dig into it, the more you see how hard it's going to be to cut this shit out at the roots and change anything about it. You know, I mean, fuck, dude, that's. But I guess it's so daunting that it can be discouraging and that kind of leads to complacency and well, just move on. We'll go back to normal. We'll keep an eye on them. And then, you know, not even six months later from now, there's another case. Right. So fuck. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that some of the most powerful voices we've heard during this entire time have not been politicians. They've been young, young, you know, teenagers and early twenties and, just citizens, or, or in, in some cases, like Killer Mike, uh, the rapper, who gave an incredible speech in Atlanta. Um, those are the most powerful voices, and I think ultimately to change it long term, what we're going to need is those voices to, uh, to, to strive to be in the positions of power, whether it's in the police force or, you know, in politics or whatever. And um, mm-hmm. boy, that's a lot to ask of them. Uh, like, hey, I know your your dream might be to uh, run a, run a, a restaurant someday, or you know, uh, play play in the NFL. But if you could put that on hold <laughs> to uh, come save the world and run for local office, uh, but yeah, I really hope that uh, I really hope that some of them are considering it would, that. Man, it, it would. would uh, it's so funny now. I laughed earlier in the and we were discussing, and you said young people who are under forty. Cause that's where you're at. Right. <laughs> I'll tell you, I'm 44. And, <laughs> right. uh, that's one of the signs is that you always consider young people to be yourself and younger. <laughs> you know? See your, your vision of young people is going to get older as you get older, which is very funny. That, that tickled me when you said it. Cause I was like, Oh yeah, I remember that. And, and I know you're, you're a, you're a father, right? You got a little one at the house and, one of the, I've got four, right? I I've do, got four yeah. kiddos from the age of 13 down to four. And uh, mm. being a dad and having kids, it changes your, your, your outlook on life. Where before I had kids, I was getting, I started, I felt like I was an older young guy. And only in the last couple of years, I've accepted <laughs> that I am now switched over to a younger old guy. 
Yeah, you're uh, right there, I, dude. I feel like I'm right on the cusp. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm getting there because I'm also like the tail end of like the or the tail beginning of like the millennials. Um, so I don't I don't identify with that because I'm like, oh, those are the, the damn kids. But then I, I also have like progressive viewpoints. So I'm like, no, I'm one of the, I'm not, I'm not like this old guy who's like stuck in his way. So like the thing that always makes me feel old just to, and I know this is off topic, but um, have you ever gone to a sporting event and uh, they, oh, they put somebody's date crazy. of birth on the screen? Like, like one of the players and it's like born in like 98 <laughs> and you're like, get the fuck out of here, dude. That, yeah, shut up. That 98. pisses me off. And then you're like, I've, Man, had, I'm old. I've had that moment. And I'm like, I remember very I, clearly that year. And, and this guy is not only, it's not like he's a rookie. This is a guy who's fifth, fifth year, uh, all pro all-star kind of guy who looks old as fuck. You know, they're talking about him as a veteran. Yeah. And I'm like, I, I was in college the year he was born for fuck's sake. How old am I? <laughs> and, and there was a, another, I remember this moment when, um, when I was older than any current NFL player, that was a tough, like it took, it took a lot of old yeah. kickers retiring before I finally accepted that. Okay. I am now no longer <laughs> in service age for a professional athlete. That's fucking. You were, you were measuring your, your entire yeah. life based on no, Sebastian yeah, exactly. and Oh, uh, was the guy who used to kick for uh, the, the Patriots and then the Colts, the fucking old guy. Oh, uh, Vinatieri, yeah, yeah, Vinatieri. Yeah, 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 yeah. Vinatieri for a long time because we were—he was like a couple of months older than me. But then I'm like, I'm, I look at myself and I'm like, I don't feel all old and busted. And then I see him and he's gray and shit, looks like fucking Gandalf the Kicker. I'm like, yeah. Oh my god. Or 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 if you ever listen to like analysts discuss like the 27 year old running back. Oh yeah, yeah. When a running back hits thirty, oh my and god, he needs to be shot behind a barn. I'm like, dude. 30 was 14 years ago exactly jesus christ all right so all right john fine i'm old i accept it i am a young old guy Uh, let's take a quick little we'll take a quick little break pat we come back let's talk about something (laughs) a little bit lighter i want to talk about the uh uh, the roast and get to know your comedy a little bit more man because you are an extremely impressive guy and i was uh blown away by watching you work all right so you got to stick and stick around We'll be right back with more Pat Barker. Right yeah, sounds good. Thanks, bud. Welcome back to the After Later podcast. I am your host, John Wessling. Today, my guest uh, joining me um, from Los Angeles, but he's from Philadelphia, uh, Pat Barker, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome, Pat Barker. Hey, hey, it was a long break, wasn't it? I hey, hope you had a chance hey, to stretch your legs there. I know it was. It's, it's, it's <laughs> tough to keep jog, momentum during those long breaks. Yeah, I'm good. Now, uh, I got to say, now, uh, uh, Pat was, uh, I would say, the captain of Team Philadelphia. Uh, your, your partner, Mackie, I don't know how close you guys are. Matter of fact, uh, one of the most impressive things in the entire roast, I thought, was, uh, uh, was it the first round of the playoffs or the last round of the group thing where he just didn't show up and you had to go two-on-one and, and fucking beat the sh- – I can't remember who you were against, but you just beat yeah. the shit out of him. It was, it was one of the most imp- – Oh yeah, and of course Atlanta, Atlanta. They were very funny, but they went with like yeah. a full-blown multimedia, doing about four fucking minutes a piece. It was like watching uh, a, a Daily Show reel, and then you would just say, "Okay, yeah. thank you for that." Bam, hit him right in the fucking neck, and then they would go again, and and that was 
that was amazing. <laughs> yeah, that was that was. The, thank you, man. Thank you. That was um. Yeah, that was the last week of the regular season. I Mecky and I. Um, he's a lot younger than I am. Uh, Mecky is this uh this. He's a kid, and I want to say he's in his 20s. Uh, very funny dude from Philadelphia. Um, and we didn't know each other that well before the competition. Uh, we sort of got paired up. Um, <laughs> we both live in L.A., actually. Um, and I see Mecky every time I have, like, a meeting or I'm working on a project or something, Mecky is always in the building, whether it's Comedy Central or, you know, anybody else. Like, Mecky is always running yeah. around. He's like this – he's killing it. He's so fucking good. Um, and uh, roasting is really not his thing. And we spoke about this before the competition where he was just kind of like, and I feel like honestly, that was the only real like downfall of it in general is there are so many incredible roast comics. Um, and I have been, I've been a, a big part of that world for the last like five or six years. And I, I've gotten to know people from all over the country who, Mm -hmm. specialize in roast because it's really a different muscle than um than just stand-up comedy um and uh you know i i, I think that mecky just it, it's not really his thing he was never really like super into the art of like crafting a roast joke and he's a he's a great comic right. but it's almost like putting Shaq in the three-point shootout like just because you're an all-time great basketball player doesn't mean you can do well, I didn't really mean that. I, I definitely set. wasn't uh, um, trying to criticize uh, Mickey's yeah. work. No, 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 no. I, I meant yes, you were. By, yes, I, you were, John. It's been tough to be it, it, someone that you have to be fucking Jeff Ross to be your partner and not stick out as the one who's. That was my that was my kind of angle on it. Was <laughs> I mean shit? It was basically you and a human shield was more effective. You know what I'm saying? So yeah. <laughs> And I think, like you said, and it's been hard to yeah, explain this to yeah. other people to watch it, uh, that, that roasting kind of vibe, like you said, it's a different muscle. There's, there's comics that are world-class stand-up comics they, who, can't, who can't do it at all. And then there's people yeah. who are amazing at roasting. They just have that natural skill at it who are complete fucking trash on stage. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, if, if you had them doing a regular stand-up set, you're like, okay, this is, this is like watching someone with one fuck move making a porno like you you gotta you gotta raise a leg or do something here man you're <laughs> you're just going you're just a hard pumper you gotta it works in a right. though you know but dude i gotta say uh i was scared shitless when we wound up in the draw against you guys like i thought for sure we were just gonna get smoked i can't believe we got past you to me that was that was like the big win for us in the tournament you know what i mean and uh so i don't and you unleashed some shit on mm -hmm. us about Houston that was unbelievably well crafted, and I can't believe that that we somehow got the win in that deal. I was suspicious. I'm like, there's no fucking way <laughs> that doesn't add up. Yeah, you know, I had a feeling. I mean, you guys, you guys killed it. Uh, you and Trey uh, are both, uh, you know, really funny. A um, lot of a lot of great jokes coming out of the both of you. Um, I, yeah, you, you kind of get a feeling when it's going on, like, um, and, and you guys were hitting so consistently, um, and, uh, you know, there were a couple of, uh, there were a couple of minor, like, um, like, sequential issues, like, I had this joke um, involving Beyonce, because she's from Houston, obviously, and, uh, and uh, Houston has also been named, like, the fattest city in America several times. 
And I had this joke that had several parts, but the, the punchline that I fell in love with, and most of my shit was so vicious that I really loved the, the goofiness of the phrase. Um, yeah, that's great. That's a great joke. called the type two dia beehive. Um, right. But right before I did it, Trey did a joke where the punchline <laughs> about Philadelphia was diabetes, like right before I was about to do it. So I feel like it took some of the took some of the sting out of it, and it's just kind of I love the strategic nature of that because I've been doing the roast battle out here in L.A. really since I moved here. I've done thirty six of them um, in L.A. and all over the country. We traveled, we did it on the road a little bit. Uh, I've done two seasons of the the TV show on Comedy Central. Um, so there's a lot of strategy that goes into it knowing what they're going to hit, having rebuttals ready, preparing your things in an order where it's like, well, this isn't my strongest joke, but it sets the table for a joke I'm doing later. And all, I love that kind of stuff just as much as the actual joke writing. Um, but every now and then you can't plan for something and you just kind of like, <laughs> I got this fire diabetes joke. It's going to crush unless the yeah. guy right before me I, does I, a diabetes joke, I had that, which I is exactly you, uh, what happened. the workload so like, of, of getting it. ready for one of those roasts, right? And for the listeners, if you, if you, uh, you've, you've heard me talking about it for weeks, um, but if you don't know, it was, it was two on two roasting each other's cities, right? So it was like a rotating, like, you know, uh, teammate a then other a then b then b so it's kind of you know it was like a, a kind of just rotating around anyway and i had i would say the workload of, of getting ready was about 75 percent writing the jokes and then it was trying to figure out the order i wanted to do them in for mm-hmm. maximum effect right and and how can i kind of come up with something that in the first round that sets up this okay if they're going if we're the home team and we're you know we got the hammer we're going last you know, where do I, what do I want to close with right before they go to the voting? Right. And then, and then uh, I would get in touch with Trey. We would sort of run our material at each other to see who had what. And there was, I would say, I probably dropped three killer jokes just to clear the lane for Trey's that I thought was as good or better. Just because I didn't want to, I didn't want to step on it. Right. You know I mean? Kind of like the, yeah. Like the basketball player who gets out of the lane so the guy gets a clear dunk for the poster. You know what I mean? I don't I don't wanna I don't wanna fuck up the shot here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm you're just set, you're trying to get my face out, out of you're the way so I don't, there, the, I don't fuck up the top ten uh highlight, right? And uh that was uh, and to me that part, the strategy of it was yeah. exciting, dude. That was fun. That was like and then to see them work or not work. I mean, there was, I, I can't remember which one it was. I think it was against Dallas where they, I had to, I, I had the last second audible use one of my backup jokes because they, same thing. They had stepped on my premise with that. And it was like a good one too. It was like a real good Cowboys burn, but they fucking hit me with an, with an Astros thing. So I had to, I had to, I had to dodge and parry and move real quick, you know, and that was, it was fucking fun, man. It was really, really exciting. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, you know, you talk about running the jokes ahead of time. That was one area where Mecky and I, uh, it actually worked out really well, was, like, because my background is in roasting. And really, like, you know, I wrote for the Alec Baldwin roast, and, like, that was vicious, but I feel like it was also pretty, um, you know, it's a lot tamer than the roast battle. (laughs) The roast battle is, like, what's the most evil shit I can say? It's all about, like, 
being as mean and funny as possible. So, like, naturally, when I come to do this, if I'm battling New York, my brain immediately goes 9-11, right? That's the first place my brain goes. It's fucked up, but it's like, this is the nature of the beast. <laughs> well, Mecky is, like, yeah. looking at, like, property value and, like, the tax rate and, like, shit like that. He's a really smart kid, so he's hitting them on, like, the, the psychological issues it would take to pay $3,000 for a studio apartment. And I'm like, damn, remember the time they crashed into that fucking building? That was wild. So, like, whenever we called each other to run jokes, it was never like, oh, you, I was going to do a joke about that. Because, like, uh, that's we, great. we just thought so that's, that's differently. Totally you know, you I, know? Was, um, I did an episode with uh, my old friend Sarah Talamash, right? It's a Joe List wife. And she's extremely fun. She's one of my favorites. I say she's the funniest yeah, person sure. I've ever met, right? And we were talking about this because she had done, you know, she had a, a pretty big, uh, 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 what do you call it? it, was on one of the roast battle shows with her against Joe. It was very, very funny. And how, and I thought, and I'm glad I talked to her at the beginning yeah. of this thing because I was kind of stressing about the, the angle. I've, I've never done a lot of that kind of roast battling stuff. That there's really two kind of schools of thought with roasting. There's the old-fashioned Friars Club style roast, which is all friends picking on each other. And it's the idea that, like I always said at the beginning of the Friars Club, we only roast the ones we love, right? Mm -hmm. And then there's the roast battle, which is a completely different animal, which is way more sure. like, like rap battles. It's more like like a uh, comic version of eight mile fighting. And that's like that then it's it ain't it's not friendly. It's it's personal as fuck. Mm -hmm. You don't really know the you're not really doing it with a lot with friends mostly. So but she gave me the tip and, and I thought about it is that if if you're just over the top mean and the other person isn't bringing the funny, then the whole match kind of gets booed. You know what I mean? Kind of like a if you if you're watching a UFC ticket and the two guys aren't putting on a good fight, for sure. No matter who wins, you both lost because it was lame to watch, right? So it's like you get more glory out of winning, or you actually you get more glory out of losing a close yeah. roast if it was really really funny and everyone laughed at it. No, no doubt about it. And I think like finding that balance of mean and funny, like. I remember in the pre-show meetings before we did this, we would show up like 15 minutes before the show started. And there was one uh, comic who had struggled throughout the entire thing who just kept saying like, I'm just not mean." He's like, I feel like the ratio is like 80% mean and 20% funny. And to me, it's always like, why don't you shoot for a hundred percent mean and a hundred percent funny? They're not mutually exclusive. If you're, working backwards and making a 9-11 joke just to make one and it's not good then you are then then that's bullshit you shouldn't be doing it just for shock value but if you could take it and craft a really brilliant joke around that using wordplay using double entendres using you know all the things that a writer should consider part of his craft if you can apply those to a tragedy then by all means but you have to figure out, like, for instance, when, when we battled you guys, and this was a very local reference <laughs> that I did mostly for the Houston people watching, and I knew it would be lost on most of the world. Um, right. Most of the world doesn't yeah, know that, that Houston is famous for chopped and screwed as, as a subgenre of rap. I took that fact, <laughs> and I started Googling serial killers from Houston. And I was like, if I could find somebody who stabbed people and I could find somebody who fucked people, <laughs> I have the perfect joke. And luckily enough, you guys had those two people. 
But I only wanted to do a joke about serial killers stabbing and fucking people mm. if it could be perfect. I don't want to do that just for the sake of doing it. <laughs> I did it because Chopped and Screwed worked perfectly with stabbing and fucking. Like, you know, so that's what that's what I think it's all about. Like, if you're writing these jokes, take some pride in it and be like, well, I'm not going to say the fucked up shit just for the sake of saying it. I'm going to find the most creative way to say this that nobody's ever said it before. And I'm going to – that's the challenge to to make a joke like that and, and have that's it great. be that's, that's so That's a great way to look at it. And, and I admire the it, craftiness you know? of that. I I admire the the bank shot when it comes to watching some comic skill. You know what I mean? It's not about the the it's not about the laying down cover fire blaster. It's sure. about the the sniper shot for me, and that was a brilliant one. Like I thought, I thought that one was so good that that's why I thought you had us on the ropes. I was like, oh fuck, my my Gino's Pats joke isn't going to hold up. <laughs> but I knew I knew most of the people. <laughs> but I knew most of the people wouldn't get it. I ran it by probably like five or six people and everybody was like, I, I don't know what that means. So I was like, all right, this is, this one's mostly for me. Um, and then I tagged it with like an Astros reference. Everybody would get to like sort of bring it full circle. But um, yeah, sometimes you write for, for you, uh, you know, just as much as, as everybody else, but that's the challenge of it. Finding a way to like be creative with this shit and not just be vicious just for the sake of, of being vicious. Um, okay. And, you know, I want to I push back on one thing you said uh, a little bit earlier um, about uh, the difference between, like, we only roast the ones we love and then what the roast battle is. Uh, it's so funny. I've been a part of, and, and the roast yeah. battle is on TV, but we've done a live show at the Comedy Store here in L.A. for seven years. All of the best friends in my life that I've met out here have been people I roasted. The experience of going out to lunch with the person, sitting down, telling them all the most fucked up shit about you so that they know what to write about and them doing the same and then thinking about this person nonstop for a few weeks. Um, and then the, the incredible like rush of adrenaline to get it out. And then That's Jeff good. Ross uh, has instituted the rule that every battle ends with a hug because he wanted to bring that Friars club energy over to there. We only roast the ones we love. And I would say the vast majority of people that I've, I've battled against have become my very best friends. So it's funny because on the outside looking in, you would look at it and you would think, okay, it is like eight mile. It is, it's, su it's super vicious. Like, how could they talk after that? But the fact is like the people who have gone the hardest on like my dad dying and my wife's miscarriage and stuff like that are the people that are like my best friends in the entire world. It's really fucked up. And I, I, it, it would take like a, a psychiatrist months to unravel what I just uh, said. But um, I would true. say, that a little bit of uh, my perception on that wasn't based off of like the Jeff Ross show that you were a part of at comedy store or the, or the, or the really top level, you know, comedy central show. I'm talking mm, more like, yeah. like it's like wrestling. There's a lot of the lower level. There's a lot of the, the very poorly put together roast battles all over that don't have the same <laughs> artistic level of, of uh, talent. And it just turns into fuck yep. yous. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, so that, that's kind of what I would say was would be, what kind of were my, my perception. That, but I'm glad that you said that totally because that is fair. true. And that's encouraging and, and good to hear. And I'm glad. I didn't know that uh, Jeff had the, the every roast ends of the hug thing because that's a, that's a great way to do it. And I, I'm guessing, too, that you get a little bit of that, that wrestler's 
kayfabe, right? You hold you, oh, you're you're angry while people are watching, and then as soon as you're back behind, you're like, oh, that was fucking great. Oh, that thing you said about my miscarriage, you fucking killed me with that. Uh, 100%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you, when you're on stage, it, it's completely different. The moment you step off stage, the release of that tension, and you're just like, <laughs> you, you just want to hug the person for an hour and just be like, you're amazing. That was great. Um, and uh, it's just something that brings you closer together. One of my, one of my uh, closest comedian friends in Houston now is a guy I battled there. We did a road, road <laughs> battle in Houston that was a disaster of epic proportions that brought us all closer. Uh, And I battled a a guy named uh, Radu Bandar, who um, super funny. And um, we became, you know, friends because now he comes to LA and we, he hits me up and, you know, we hang out and everything. And like, uh, I, I really like him, but like, I would have never known him if I didn't have to like sit around and research him and like talk to him before the battle. So um, yeah, it's uh it's, it's pretty cool that, uh, by the way, I, if, if anybody in Houston is listening to this and came to the actual roast battle we did, uh, I apologize uh, uh, a thousand percent for that. We got stranded for 11 hours in Nashville at the airport, uh, oh, no. and we ended up getting to Houston like two hours after the show was supposed to start. Um, so we couldn't get there. We couldn't set anything up the way we wanted to. It was just it was a nightmare, and it was supposed to be two shows. So we cut it down to one and we put all the battles on one show. So there were like 10 battles. It was way too long. It was, it was not the product that we usually put out on the road. It was a, it was a real shame. Um, but there was nothing, there was nothing anybody could do. It's just, uh, it's just, uh, yeah, it, it sucked. But uh, I was really impressed. Man, with was the there Houston a particular airline you that show and then in this for uh, coast, you in coast thing that we did? <laughs> I don't even remember who we were on, man. Um, I, I don't even remember. All I remember is we were supposed to do three, four shows in three nights. We did Nashville. Then we did Huntsville. Then Because there's no – Huntsville doesn't fly to anywhere. So we had to wake up at, like, 6 in the morning to drive back to Nashville to catch, like, a 9 a.m. Oh, flight. That, that, that does suck. That and then it got suck. delayed well, dude, for, like, 11 hours. Say, uh, it was, Pat, just, it was an to, absolute uh, nightmare. I hope I work with you on future yeah. projects. I'd love to hang out with you in real life. You're a very, very funny cat, and it was a, it was a treat to compete with you. Dude, so, uh, real quick, uh, what's the name of the, the podcast again that you do with Same, Jeff? bud. Same. Thank you. Oh, I do a, a podcast called Pat and Jeff Like Sports. Um... It is, uh, it, yeah, it's a sports podcast. I, sports. I think it's really now, funny. what were those again? I, I think, uh, I, if, it if sounds people are familiar. sports fans out there, listen to but, it. Uh... I think you'll get a kick out of it. <laughs> it was before, hmm, right. that's, before that's the world ended. I can't imagine. Um, oh, people would, people oh, would play like games riots? for our sounds amusement. Like a riot, but with a score? That sounds like fun. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Except there was a ball involved. There was a. They would put a ball in there, and then you, you rioted over the ball. It's so funny because, like this, this podcast now, like the, the, doing a sports podcast, is just so tough. Because every week it's like, well, there's one like mm-hmm. morsel of sports information, <laughs> whether it's like the MLB negotiations or like Wes Unseld dies, and it's like, okay, we could talk for five minutes, and then it's like 
45 minute debate on what's dude, the best ballpark concession. I used to do uh, like, we're sports just, talk we're radio here trying, in Houston, dude. It's, and, uh, it's tough, but we're right uh, we're now everyone it. like everyone has to do what we used to have to do on weekends in the mm. summer. Where the, when there's no sports, really, there's hardly anything going on. You're doing top 10 lists. You're doing uh, uh, best left-handed point guards from the 70s, counting them down. You know what I mean? You're, you're, you're chewing through all of that shit. And now that everyone's got nothing left where they're just talking about <laughs> Korean baseball standards. And that's pretty much all that's left. Dude, I, it reminds me so much of growing up in Philly. Uh, Philly Sports Talk Radio is an abomination, and I hate it. Um, but uh, they used to have uh, – I, I used to stay up all night, and they used to have a, a radio host who would do the overnights named Big Daddy Graham. And uh, I really was – I didn't like this guy. And every night he would have Big Daddy Graham snack of the night where I swear to God, John, during the commercial break he would go down to the vending machine <laughs> – he would pick a different snack and then he would just eat it live on air. He'd be like, today I got a Reese's nut rages bar. <laughs> All right. I'm about to try it. And you would just listen to audio of him like <laughs> chewing caramel for like four minutes and occasionally going pretty good. Pretty good. And I was like, what the fuck is this shit? And then like now hosting a sports podcast in this era where nothing's going, it's like, Oh, now I get it. You had mm-hmm. to, you had to do a call-in show for five hours a night when everybody was asleep. So, yeah, sometimes you have to <laughs> oh, eat a fucking candy bar into the microphone just to kill time. I get it. On air and you basically have to, you have to just do you have to just do filler shit to while you're waiting for something to happen. You're waiting. Yes. You throw the phone number out, and then you know there's about a ten second delay. So then you're just saying random bullshit words and hoping that someone heard you say the number and is dialing and you're like, uh, nope, nope, no one heard me. No one's calling in. Okay, well, let's, uh, let's, let's look at uh, who were Michael Jordan's worst teammates list. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah, no, no shit. Oh, man. Well, uh, Pat, let me get to the, the, the final <laughs> question. On Luke Longley again. Normally scheduled life, uh, get back to parenting. Um, I like to finish the, the After Letter podcast with uh, the, the big question, okay? This podcast basically started in the uh, coronavirus plague, so I like to think, let's, let's, let's game it out. Let's say that this, especially with the riots and <laughs> shit going on now, it's easy to imagine. Let's say that this just turns into a full, complete societal collapse, right? And that we find ourselves in a walking dead, Mad Max kind of future dystopia. What job skills do you yeah. have that you think you could employ to survive in that world, right? Like if you found yourself at the armed gates of the local warlord and you basically had to give your elevator pitch to stay alive and to be a part of their group, what would you do? I'm going to be 100% honest because I, I th- I've thought about this, like, in the past. Like, when people mention, like, the zombie apocalypse and shit. Like, um, I'm out, man. I'm out. I'm not even trying. I've thought about this. I don't think I have any <laughs> skills that would be of any use to anybody. I don't think roasting would be very popular at that point. Um, I, don't think, I don't think being able to, to name every member of the 500 Home Run Club would get me very far. Um, I think I would just kind of be fucked. I'm out of shape. I have asthma. Um, I scare easily. I don't think I, I've never fired a gun. Like, I think I would be completely <laughs> fucking useless. And, like, even when you were asking that question, like, you lost me at Warlord. 
as soon as somebody's like, this is the warlord, I'm like, nah, I'm good. And I, I'm just, I'm just going to take a bunch of sleeping pills and, uh, you guys have fun with this whole thing, but I'm fucking out. Thank you again to my guest today, the very funny Pat Barker. Uh, that was a great conversation, man. That guy is uh, on the ball. If you'd like to follow Pat on social media anywhere, uh, pretty much all of them has the same handle, uh, at Pat Barker Comedy. And his podcast is called Pat and Jeff Like Sports, whatever sports are. Sounds familiar. <laughs> but that was a great conversation. I uh, got um, really, really cool ones lined up for the next couple of days and uh, next week as well, but I've always got room for more. If you're an interesting, unique person and you would like to be interviewed on the Afterlayer podcast, uh, I'm looking for you. Hit me up on Twitter at John Wessling, J-O-H-N-W-E-S-S-L-I-N-G. The show's Twitter. Give us a follow there too, Afterlayer, A-F-T-E-R-L, number eight, letter E-R. The Facebook page for the podcast is Afterlayer Podcast, and my personal comedy fan page is John Wessling Official. Thanks to Scott Henry, our sponsor, here on the, the After Later podcast. If you'd like to be a sponsor, I sure would appreciate it. Every dollar completely helps in this time where there's hardly any work at all for stand-up comics. You can go to anchor.fm slash after later. There's a support button there. Every little bit helps. 99 cents a month, $4.99, $9.99 a month. Um, all goes to a good cause, which is um, keeping my lights on. <laughs> and usually just paying for the Xbox. That's pretty much the budget I'm at right now. If this pays for the Xbox Game Pass, then I feel like I'm doing good. I got to wrap it up. I got to move on here because I'm about to be a guest on my good buddy, Barry Laminax, uh live stream show called Barry on Deck. Um, you should find that. I Obviously, you're not going to hear this and get to this point and, and still have time to see me on there. But um, go on YouTube. His account's called Barry is Funny. The show is called Barry on Deck. Uh, very, very good uh, lifestyle, sports talk, comedy. And uh, uh, love Barry. He's been a friend of mine for a long time. And uh, I'm going to have him on the podcast. He's going to actually come and record it my way. Keep doing his thing, but he ain't going to do my thing yet. So we're going to get that straightened out. And as a reminder, uh, this Friday, if you're in Houston, come see me tell jokes at Rudyard's. Uh, show's called The Riot. We'll discuss more about that later. Show starts at 8. Tickets are still available. Go to eventbrite.com uh, and you can buy them in advance. And don't worry, all proper uh, COVID-19 precautions have been taken, will be taken. Uh, social distancing will be in play. Private tables, table service, uh, the whole nine yards. Okay, so you can buy tickets in advance. Uh, very limited seating. I think there's only like room for 35 people in a room that normally has about 120. Um, so it'll be a really cool night of comedy. Me, Tommy Drake, Trey Tutson, I believe, is going to be on that show as well. And, of course, Brian Gendron. Uh, uh, oh, God, was the other guy? Oh, forget him. I forget his name. Anyway, it's going to be a great show. Definitely worth the, the price of admission. Other than that, I uh, hope you have a great day, great night. Stay safe. Stay in. Hug everybody. Love everybody. Be nice. Be friendly. Don't be an asshole. That's pretty much the rule of life, okay? This is the After Later Podcast. I'm your host, John Wessling. Until next time, bye. Everybody say bye. bye. Nailed it.